1896, a young man named Gregorio de Pilar enlisted in the Philippine Revolutionary Army. Two years later, at the age of 23, he was promoted to the rank of brigadier general and made governor of a province north of Manila. He made a name for himself for violent feats during the revolution. He once single-handedly ambushed a priest and his escort of guards. He later led his troops in a surprise attack against a group of Spanish soldiers who were attending a late-night mass. So I guess you couldn't go to church any time he, he was around, but... A year after his promotion, however, Gregorio was killed by U.S. forces during the new Philippine-American War. Gregorio's leap from poverty to power is dramatic, but nothing can compare with what our friend Joseph would experience in Genesis 41. In one day, he went from prisoner to prime minister of the most powerful nation on the earth. Now, the title prime minister... That's uh, a lot of times what the commentators will, will title him with, or um, in some of them I like, they'll, they'll call him the vizier, like Jafar in Aladdin. So, and he has like a divining cup and stuff too. So think Jafar, but not evil. Uh, but, but otherwise, he was the prime minister. Uh, uh, and, and when I think of that title, I, it, it helps to put Joseph's aggrandizement into perspective. Prime minister. Now, when I think of modern prime ministers today, I often think of power and authority and military and all of that, but Joseph was not being made into a brigadier general. His job wasn't going to be to slay people. He was being empowered to minister, to serve people. And it's an interesting development because that's what he's been doing all along, right? We were told in the last passage when he was uh, uh, there in the jail, he was ministering to people, and he was asked specifically to minister to the butler and the baker. Joseph was brought out of prison, but he wasn't set free. He's given a duty and an opportunity to save many, many lives and to change the course of world history. He would carry out this duty for 80 years. The job had perks and comforts, to be sure, but the rest of his days were going to be defined by serving and by saving lives. This text contains beautiful parallels for us of Jesus Christ's glorification, His future rule. At the same time, we can find application for our own lives as Christians as we study Joseph's example. And that makes sense because even though we are not Christ, we are not king, you know, we are not the Messiah, yet we are his body, right? And we follow after him and we conform our lives to him and we do the work that he started. He said, the works that I do, you guys are going to do greater works than these. And so Joseph in this passage can stand for us as we look at him from, from different angles. He can stand for us as both a type of our Lord and an example to us as people who are called out to serve uh, in a desperate world. So let's look at the beginning of verse 1. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. Hold there. Now, in my version, the chapter opens with those three words, at the end. Joseph, we'll find, still had a deep and abiding faith in God. He trusted God. He didn't doubt the character and nature of God. But I am sure that he was wondering day after day, when will my suffering end? He had been suffering for a long time, uh, first at the hands of his brothers, then as a slave, now as a prisoner uh, and a forgotten prisoner. And so I'm sure he was thinking, when will my suffering end? God has explained to us, His people, that suffering is going to be a part of all of our lives at one level or another. 
But more importantly, he's explained that one day that suffering is going to come to an end. He will deliver us from every sorrow, from every pain, from every doubt, from every difficulty. The day is coming. The dawn is coming. We're going to be brought out of the influence of sin and the consequences of sin and out of this fallen world, and we're going to be brought into glory where we will be glorified and live forever in perfect harmony with our Lord. And so every suffering, every difficulty is going to come to an end. Joseph suffered as a prisoner and a slave, not just for two years, but for 13 long years. But the dawn of the new day was about to break, and he was going to be rescued from pit to palace. And now, considering our coming rescue from earth to heaven, man, just think about that. Think about how we're going to be taken from earth to heaven, from mortality to immortality, from sinful imperfection to perfect glory. We can't fathom how good and how wonderful and how hopeful that is going to be, and yet we know it to be true because the Lord has promised it, and it is certainly coming. Verse 1 continues, Pharaoh was standing beside the Nile in his dream when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and good, came up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump, full ones. Then Pharaoh woke up, and it was only a dream. Uh, bad dreams don't need a reason to be bad, right? Sometimes they're just weird, random things, and you wake up, and you were freaked out by it, and then when you think about it, like, why was I upset about that? But, you know, this was more than a bad dream. Uh, all of these images, of course, they would have these sort of emotional pressure and, and just sort of the vibe around it that you get when you have a bad dream, but all of these images were full of significance to Pharaoh. Uh, and in Egypt, dreams were a big deal. And so he, in his dream, all of these things would be, would be piquing his interest. For example, the Nile was the source of Egypt's power, of Egypt's agriculture, of its wealth. Cows were symbol of the god Isis. The number seven was a sacred number, sometimes symbolizing fate. Wheat was utilized at all levels and in all spheres of ancient Egyptian society. In fact, bread and beer were served at nearly every meal, and they were often used as wages and the basis of the bartering economy there in the nation. The east wind would have been known to Pharaoh in that era and in that region. Desert winds would blow in during the spring or autumn, and they could dry up vegetation overnight. It could destroy a crop. That sort of wind is referenced elsewhere in the Bible in Ezekiel, Jonah, and Isaiah. But thanks to the Nile, Egypt was normally able to weather famines that were caused by the east wind. But all of this is kind of swirling together to create uh, quite a, a problematic question mark for Pharaoh in his dream. Pharaoh jolted awake for a second time that night. And it says there, it was just a dream. Or your version might say, behold, it was a dream. Oh, man, and he has that moment of relief for a second. Oh, it was just a dream. Uh, but if only that were true, right? It wasn't just a dream. God was revealing that a disaster was on its way. The nightmare was going to become very real. In fact, the reality was going to be much worse than the dream had been. 
The dream was one night of interrupted sleep. This famine was going to impact many nations and potentially cause uh, 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 the destruction of nations uh, because of its severity. God has revealed to our world that a judgment is coming. It's going to be poured out all over planet Earth. He tells us not to terrify us, but to warn us so that disaster might be averted for individuals who would believe and call out to Him and be saved from the wrath to come. And this has always been the Lord's heart. Through this dream, God in heaven is reaching down with mercy and grace to an unbelieving king of an unbelieving nation that has nothing to do with him, that has no desire for him, that is not seeking him. And God says, yeah, but I love you. And so I'm going to reach down from heaven. I'm going to reach right into your heart, Pharaoh. I'm going to reach right into your mind, right into your dream, where you're at as you sleep, so that I can warn you about something that's going to come in hopes that you'll turn to me and, and receive the deliverance that I want to give you. And this is the same reason why God has revealed His plan for the coming judgment of the earth for us today, right? He says that, hey, a worldwide, global, final judgment is coming to this earth. And if we don't do something about it, then if a person doesn't do something about that news, then they are going to spend a Christless eternity in hell, which is the opposite of what God wants. And so he says, this judgment is coming, and I'm warning you about it beforehand, long beforehand, so that you can know about it and respond to what I'm telling you. Verse 8, when morning came, he was troubled, so he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. So remember, if you were here last time, dream interpretation was a really big deal in Egypt. It was a science to them. Uh, They had very formalized, very professional guilds of people and scholar students who spent their entire lives dedicated to the science of interpreting dreams. These magicians were celebrated professionals. They had piles and piles of scrolls all about the science of interpreting dreams and what each image and each symbol in a dream means. They could consult these libraries that we've uncovered uh, by archaeology. They were trained in what are called the houses of life. If you wanted to know what what the meaning of life was and, and what to make of your life, man, talk to these guys. This was their moment. They've been training their whole lives for this. At the, at the most impressive schools, with the most impressive materials, with, you know, this was the pinnacle, and this was the time, and they had zero help for Pharaoh, none, none whatsoever. Imagine people training for their entire lives to be firemen, and when the fire finally broke out, they didn't know how to put out the fire. It would be a shocking embarrassment. It would be a real problem. This would have just been a, a, a hilarious scene if not for the danger that it posed for this nation. The humiliation is compounded when we realize that Pharaoh himself was supposed to be the very incarnation of the god Horus, right? So in their system, in their religion, in their culture, they believed that Pharaoh was an incarnation of God. And therefore, he had power, he had understanding, he had ability, and so this shouldn't be a problem for him either. 
After all, the name God, or sorry, the name Horus means he who is above, right? I'm above all of these things. I'm above the lowly mortals of the world. I'm above your small problems. I'm above all of these other issues. I'm Horus walking among you. Worship me. But there in the court of the most powerful ruler on earth, full of wizards and divine incarnations sitting on the throne, everyone comes up absolutely empty. No one has a plan. No one has knowledge. No one has truth. No one has answers. Instead of answers, there was only fear. Instead of confidence, there was only the admission that none of them knew what the truth was or what they could possibly do about it. This is a scene. You see, without truth, without real truth, heavenly truth, their power could not save them. These people had a lot of power. This was the superpower of the day. There was no greater country than Egypt, no stronger ruler than Pharaoh. He's a god. They have their libraries. They have their universities. They have their magicians and their wise men. They have everything that you could possibly want to retain their power and maintain their society. And we see they had no truth. Therefore, their power could not save them. And so Pharaoh trembled in his throne. Literally, the phrase there means his spirit pounded. His heart was pounding within him because he knew they were in deep, deep trouble. He didn't know what the trouble was. He didn't know what they could do about it, but they all realized that there was a real problem. Now, in this moment, in this bleak, embarrassing scene, the butler finally speaks up. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I remember my faults, Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now, a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us, for each had its own interpretation, and it turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position. The other man was hanged. So, on the one hand, the Butler's forgetfulness almost led to the destruction of an entire nation. You ever forget your keys at home? Ever forget to do something? Forget to make that phone call? Probably America is not going to crumble as a result of that, which is great. Uh, But, you know, his forgetfulness almost leads to their destruction. On the other hand, you know, it also would have taken a lot of guts for him to speak up in this moment. You know why? He's not a certified wise man. He doesn't have a diploma from the houses of life. He's not a magician. In fact, you know, he had been restored to his position, but he probably felt things were a little bit tenuous. Has your boss ever thrown you in jail and threatened to to kill you? You know, and then said, all right, you can come back to work. You probably step a little lightly if that's happening. And so he's brought back to, you know, his, his job there. And, and, and so in this moment of desperation, he finally speaks up and he says, hey, I'm the cupbearer. And I know you guys are the dream people, and you're the magicians, and you're doing all this weird stuff, but I have something to say. And so I think this actually would have taken a lot of courage. And it's so great that he did speak up because he was the only person in the room who had any sort of help or hope for the situation. He's the only one that had any kind of information that would actually make a difference. He could point the way to a person who might make sense of the mess. He wasn't saying he knew the answer, but he said, you know what? I think I know the person who can help us. And so much of Christian ministry and so much of sharing the gospel, right? I think sometimes we might get tied up thinking that, well, I have to 
have, you know, every verse memorized, and I have to be able to give a dissertation on all of these different arguments and things like that. And, and, and it's true, we want to have knowledge, and it's really good to uh, use apologetics and really good to add information and, and understanding to, to our presentation of the gospel. I'm not making light of any of that at all. We want to always be growing in our understanding of the Word of God, and, and the more we understand, the better we're able to communicate to a wider group of people and all of that. At the same time, a lot of what, what the Lord is going to give us the opportunity to do is just point and direction of the person who can give people the answers they need. And that person is Jesus Christ. And say, hey, I just want to talk to you about how you need to understand who Jesus is. Well, I have all these questions. Great, there's, there's a big, thick Bible for you. If you actually want to know the answers to, to your questions, uh, they can be found in the Word of God because it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is given uh, for all that we need for life and for godliness, right? And so I'm not saying that this guy was a believer. He wasn't, but I do love that he just could point in the direction that they should go to find some answers. Everyone chides the butlers, uh, the butler for not remembering Joseph, but you know, think about it. He did. He forgot him. But I don't know if we can blame him too much. You know, it, if you were sent to prison and almost got your head cut off and your body impaled on a stick, and then the Pharaoh said, you know what, okay, you can come back to work, are you really going to show up on that next day at work and be like, oh, by the way, I also need you to let this other guy out of prison too? That's kind of a weird thing to ask and to bring up. Why? Well, he did some, you know, dream tricks for me. And Pharaoh's thinking, yeah, I already got a whole group of dream guys that, you know, know all of that stuff. So I don't want to chide the butler too much for that. The butler encourages me because he demonstrates that you and I can be used in spite of our shortcomings. He forgot, to be sure. He biffed it. But the Lord still used him to connect Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to Joseph, right? And that's a great thing because I'm a bonehead, and I may be a bonehead from time to time. Uh, but the Lord can still use me. And, and even though we may lack worldly certification or worldly qualifications of one sort or another, we still know the one who has the answers to the biggest questions of life, don't we? Point people to Him, point people to what He has said, and He will know what to do in their hour of need, right? And so if a person comes to you and says, well, you didn't go to school or you don't have a certification or you're not an expert in this, that, or the other thing, that's probably true. That's fine. But you know what we do know? We know the person who can save a life. We know the person who has revealed heaven's truth and given it to mankind, and I can point you in that direction, and I can tell you that I once was blind, but now I see. And so if you want to complain about my accreditation or my certification or, or whatever, if a person wants to complain about that, okay, that's fine, but I, I, we know the Lord, and He's the one who is really going to change a life, really going to answer questions. He solves problems. He brings clarity. He intervenes. So the question was, would Pharaoh humble himself to get help when he wanted help? He wanted help. He was troubled. Would he humble himself? This was the problem that Naaman, the Syrian, had to face in 2 Kings. He needed help really bad. And we, saw that, we see there that Naaman almost died a leper because of his pride. He said, I don't want to do the thing that God is asking me to do. This man of God has said, here's what you need to do. Go and dip yourself in the Jordan River. And he said, this is stupid. 
I'm too good to go in the Jordan River. I'm not doing it. And his servants had to come to him and say, hey, man, you're going to die a leper, effectively. Why don't you just do it and see what happens? And so Naaman had that choice. Would he humble himself before the Lord? And so Pharaoh would have to say, yes, bring the filthy foreign slave no one's ever heard of, and let's hear what he thinks about my dream. This is weird, right? Imagine the president of the United States doing this. He's in the situation room. Something catastrophic has happened. And he said, you know, Mr. President, we've got this news. There's a big deal happening. The joint chiefs of staff are all in the room. All of your advisors, you know, the leaders of Congress, we're all here together trying to solve this problem. None of us can figure anything out. And they're like, what if you got a dirty old bum off the street and brought him in to see what he thinks about all of this? I mean, so it's a pretty big ask. Pharaoh would really have to humble himself. Oh, and by the way, Pharaoh's like, oh, by the way, I'm God. I'm the God Horus, and I'm above all of this stuff, right? So he would really have to humble himself in this situation. The butler sort of name-checked Potiphar in verse 12. There he says, hey, uh, the slave of the captain of the guard, undoubtedly the captain of the guard is standing in the room at the time. And so maybe Pharaoh pulled him aside and said, hey, man, what's, what's with this Hebrew slave of yours? And it would have been an interesting scene. But as Bruce Waltke points out, eyewitness testimony paved the way to accept what God was trying to tell them. Eyewitness testimony made the difference in this situation. God wants to make you an eyewitness of His power, of His grace, of His goodness, of His truth. That testimony that you deliver as a personal eyewitness of who God is and what He can do That kind of testimony has power in the lives of the people around you. As you confidently proclaim to people, I know a person, God, who has the answers that you need for life. Not because I've heard about it secondhand, but because I've experienced His goodness. I've experienced His power. I know His love. I know Him to be true. I know Him to be real. I can testify that this happened in my life. And so God says, I want to build testimonies in your life so that you can go out and be used as an eyewitness for me. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. So they probably shaved his face and his head all together would have been a big change. Everything about this little montage highlights the speed and the urgency of the situation. Joseph would have received no heads up that this was coming. It just happened all of a sudden, right? He woke up in jail that morning and he's grimy and he's disgusting and he hasn't shaved in a couple of years probably. He looks, you know, like a person in a third world prison who hasn't shaved in a couple of years looks. And all of a sudden, like that, they're like, come with us. And people start shaving him, and, and they're, they're shaving all of his hair off. And they're putting new clothes on him, and they're washing him. And all of this stuff is happening all of a sudden. And, you know, it's a lovely reminder for us that in some near moment, we believers are going to be caught up from the pit of earth and ushered into the glory of heaven. And there will be given a new body and a robe of righteousness and will be presented before the king to be in his presence forever and ever. We're going to have an even more dramatic moment of transformation than this as we are caught up to be with the Lord and we're given this new body, this new life, this new robe. And, and it's going to be way more dramatic than going from the dungeon of, of Egypt to the palace of Egypt. And that's pretty dramatic. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. 
I'm not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So listen, Joseph is under a lot of pressure here. He doesn't want to go back to jail. He doesn't want to get impaled on a stick. Uh, he doesn't want any of these things to happen. And Pharaoh's the kind of guy that does that kind of thing to people if he feels like it. And so the palace is full of magi, is full of scholars, officials, nobility, guards. Uh, the whole court, right, is there. And the king, the most powerful king in all the world, looks right at you and he says, I just have to tell you my dream and you'll definitely exactly know what it means, right? That's what I've heard. That's a lot of pressure. Amazingly, in this moment, Joseph is not tongue-tied. He's not nervous. He doesn't crumple under the pressure. He responds, no, you're wrong about that. Wow. Uh, He corrects Pharaoh to his face. Scholars say that his reply, I am not able to, is actually one Hebrew word. And so in a sense, it's like Pharaoh says all of this stuff, and and he says, I've heard you've been able to. And he goes, nah, no, no, that's not me. I can't do it. And he corrects Pharaoh to his face. Now, Joseph says a lot with a few words here. We notice that he is absolutely confident in the Lord. He believes that God is present and God is reliable. He says, God gave you this dream, and so I and we should assume that he's going to give an interpretation for you. We can count on him for that. Joseph believed that God wanted to communicate to Pharaoh, and specifically that he wanted to communicate peace to Pharaoh. We learned a lot about this uh, on Sunday in our study through John 20, where it says that God will give a favorable answer, or your version may say an answer of peace. It's that Hebrew word shalom, that God wants to give people peace. His desire was to speak to them about their welfare and their wholeness and how they could be at peace with him despite the difficulties and the dangers that they faced in a lost and dying world. Verse 17, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, weak, very sickly and thin, came up. I've never seen such sickly ones as these in all the land of Egypt. Then the thin, sickly cows ate the first seven well-fed cows. And when they had devoured them, you could not tell that they had devoured them. Their appearance was as bad as it had been before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, coming up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. And the thin heads of grain swallowed the seven good ones. And I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. The world offers you its wise men, its magicians, its sages. They make big promises. They claim they can do all sorts of things for you. But, you know, the Bible always presents these kinds of individuals as absolutely insufficient for, for your hour of need, right? Think about it. Janus and Jambres in the book of Exodus, these wise men here, the wise men of Babylon, Balaam the diviner, Simon the sorcerer, all of them had power and position and prestige and, and training and all of these different things. But when push comes to shove, they cannot deliver you. They cannot deliver the truth. Now, Joseph didn't mock them, but he didn't cower before them either. He ignores them, right? He's dealing with Pharaoh. He's like, I don't really care about these other guys over here who have all of their opinions and all of their accolades and all of their weird incantations. Me and you, man, God's talking to you. I'm talking to you. And so let's deal together. Joseph knew God. They didn't, right? 
And so Joseph wasn't afraid to speak the truth and to speak it with heavenly authority and say, hey, I'm telling you what's true about God and therefore what's true about you. And I don't care what these other guys have to say or what they think that they know or what they have said to you before. This is the real truth as God has revealed it. Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Since God was so concerned that the Egyptians know about this famine, which clearly he was, he's the one that sent this dream, he's the one that sent Joseph, he's the one that gave Joseph the interpretation, Joseph saying, hey, he really cares about delivering you from this famine. Since all of that is true, why not just stop the famine? Why not just say the wind's not going to blow on Tuesday and then you won't have a famine? The Lord obviously wanted to bring deliverance, so why not just cancel the disaster? After all, this event is what would bring the family of faith down to Egypt, which would lead to their captivity for 400 years. I've always wondered, what's the deal, Lord? Why did you bring the Israelites or the family of faith into Egypt in the first place when they're going to be held captive there for 400 years? Now, we don't for sure know the mind of God on this issue. It's not spelled out 100% for us. Uh, But one commentator, I've referenced him earlier, Bruce Waltke, he has an interesting speculation that, at least for me, starts to make a little bit of sense. Because I've always wondered, what's the deal? Why are they going down to Egypt at all? Because after all, Abraham had gone to Egypt, and God said, get out of there. But now it seems that God is drawing them down to Egypt, and He's going to leave them there, and it's going to go very badly for a long time for them. Well, here's one potential speculation. You see, Abraham understood the importance of staying separate from the Canaanites. When it was time for his son to have a wife, he looked his, his servant in the eye and says, don't you dare let him marry a Canaanite. And Isaac understood that importance too. He says, don't be like Esau in marrying these Hittite ladies. Go back over here and marry someone outside of the land of Canaan. And, and so we see that, uh, that Abraham understood this, Isaac understood this, Jacob understood this, but now Jacob's sons have completely given up on this idea of separation. The sons we've been seeing, they're marrying Canaanites. And so perhaps the Lord brought his people to Egypt out of the promised land for a time to keep them from assimilating into the pagan cultures around them. The, the Egyptians would keep the Hebrews sequestered altogether. They wouldn't even eat with them. They put them in Goshen. They don't eat with them. They don't mix with them. And it happened to be at the time when Jacob's sons were like, sure, I'll marry a Canaanite. Yeah, I'll marry a Canaanite too. And there was a big problem brewing. Now, this famine that the Lord didn't cancel also drives home the fact that some judgments will not be called off. Sometimes judgments are called off by the Lord but sometimes they're not. When Jonah went to Nineveh, what did he say? He said, 40 days and then blammo, you guys are done. But then they repented. And so God said, okay, I'm canceling the disaster. I'm canceling your destruction. God called off the judgment. But you know, when Christ said, when God says to us, Christ is coming back, he's coming back in his second coming. He's going to judge the world, the great tribulation, all this is going to happen. That is not going to be called off no matter what we do, no matter what governments do, no matter if revival breaks out in one place or another, that judgment is not going to be called off. So the only hope is deliverance and salvation from it. And so we need to take God's warnings seriously. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. 
seven sickly, uh, thin sickly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine is going to devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be very severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will carry it out soon." So there was not a moment to lose. Yes, the problem, the the disaster was still years down the road, right? But the time for response and preparation was now. And the same is true as we present the gospel. The gospel is the message of warning and mercy from God that we deliver to unbelievers, right? We tell them that judgment is coming for this world and specifically judgment is coming for them as individuals. When they die, they're going to stand before God and face his wrath for their sin unless they are born again, unless they are covered by the blood of the lamb and they are saved from their guilt, right? Now, when we deliver that message, the delay between, uh, between the message coming and that judgment might be five minutes, might be five years, might be 15 years, might be 50 years from now. But now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. God is long-suffering, but there isn't a moment to lose. Just because judgment seems far off, that doesn't mean that we can just wait around and just wait for the, that day to come. Joseph is like, we need to act, and we need to act right now. Verse 33, so now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the city so they need to preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt, and then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, the famine is coming, it's from God, it can't be stopped, and then he says, so now you have the choice whether you're going to do something about it or not. Pharaoh was a man with a free will to choose. Would he believe and respond, or would he harden his heart, mock God, and be destroyed? A very similar situation plays out in the book of Daniel between Daniel and King Belshazzar. Uh, Daniel comes and he says, listen, I can interpret this for you. Judgment is coming. Belshazzar laughs, and he's like, that's hilarious. Uh, He didn't believe, and he was consumed. He died that very night. R. Kent Hughes writes this, the knowledge of what God is going to do does not produce passive resignation, but aggressive action. The fact that God has set the future is a mighty summons to action. It was Pharaoh's job to ensure that people didn't starve during a famine. And there is God reaching down to Pharaoh in his moment of utter helplessness, providing a way for people to live and not die. But Pharaoh would have to believe and respond. He would have to, in his heart, say, God is God, I'm not God, and so uh, we're going to do what this guy Joseph has to say. Joseph, for his part, wasn't one of the guys who just holds a sign on the street that says the end is near, right? Okay, well, so what? Well, the end is near. Okay, he, he, he gives that message of judgment, which was true, but he steps past the judgment and says, and here's what you should do about it since God is trying to save you and he's trying to spare you from this suffering. 
Joseph had a plan for life, not just a warning about death. He offered compassion and hope. Verse 37, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And he said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning as wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I'm placing, over you, uh, placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. So Christ came to this world as an innocent outsider. He was mistreated, falsely accused, went into the grave, came out as Lord and King forever. And now we're called to bow our knees, make the path straight before him and acknowledge his goodness, his power and his authority. And so Joseph's a great type here for us of our Lord. But there are some thoughts for our own lives here as well. When we are elevated into glory, we're going to be given treasures and invited to rule alongside the king in his kingdom. Joseph was given a gold chain here, we're told. This is not the typical word for chain or necklace in the Hebrew. Archaeological discoveries show that it was a wide collar that covered part of the shoulders and the upper neck. In fact, in the Septuagint, the term used is usually rendered as yoke. It's not jewelry. It's a job collar, right? It, it's, it, 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 it wasn't something to, to look nice. It was to identify him as you're here to be the minister, the prime minister. You're here to serve the king. But man, wouldn't Joseph have been happy to take this yoke on after all that he had been through, after he looked at the alternative of slavery and of, of being a prisoner in the pit? And this is a perfect example to us of our spiritual lives. What do we want? Do we want the, the slavery to sin, the, the, the prison of sin, or do we want to take the yoke of our Lord on us? A fellow soldier who watched Gregorio del Pilar die recounted, he wore a new khaki uniform with his campaign insignia, his silver spurs, his polished shoulder straps, his silk handkerchiefs, his rings on his fingers, always handsome and elegant. Sure. But his body would lay unburied for days on the battlefield. He lived by the sword and died by the sword, right? He emblazoned himself with all of these things for battle, and it did nothing for him. God has saved us, set us free, lifted us so that we might serve him. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to put a yoke on you as a Christian, but it's a glorious yoke. Take it and put it on and learn from me and find rest for your soul. We are not set free from sin and death so that we can do whatever we want and live just to enrich ourselves while the world burns away and starves away. That's not the job. God has set apart our lives so that we can be witnesses, so that we can be ministers, so that we can be helpers, so that we can give the answers to those who are so desperately in need of it. It's a big job, but God will always equip us for it. He equips us with a robe of righteousness. He equips us with his authority. He equips equips us with understanding, and, and he equips us with power and with a yoke that is from him. Verse 45, Joseph gave jo- uh, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath Paneah and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, uh, priest of On, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. 
So this is an interesting development. Pharaoh wanted to make Joseph like one of his own. One commentator writes this, his clothing was Egyptian, his name was Egyptian, his language is Egyptian, his wife was Egyptian, his job was Egyptian, his father-in-law was the leading Egyptian sun worshiper. Joseph's soul was in greater peril than at any other time in his short life. So the question is, would he remain true to the Lord now that he had wealth and honor and comfort and fame and freedom? We'll see that he does. He names his sons Hebrew names. He makes his family swear they will bury him in the promised land. He stays true to the Lord. He traded rags for riches, but he didn't trade Jehovah for Ra. His faith survived this promotion. We're not sure what this new name means exactly. There's a lot of debate about it. One scholar does write this, Joseph's new name in any language seems to be associated with life. Hopefully our names are associated with life too. Be about life. Be about saving life. Be about eternal, everlasting life, not the death of this world. Joseph left the dungeon and went right on the job. We're told he went throughout the land there at the end. It wasn't for sightseeing. It wasn't a vacation. He had to get going on his plan to save the world. We want to be ministers of life. If God wants to promote us in an earthly sense along the way, great. If not, we know that the ultimate promotion is still coming It's going to be in heaven. It's worth the work. It's worth the wait. It's worth whatever we can give as we trust Him and allow Him to use us for His glory.